from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Y'all ready for this? So Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator in Wisconsin, USA. I am known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter. I am known as Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Wednesday, the 23rd of January. It's almost my birthday, but I don't really care about birthdays very much. Um, on this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economic economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is. A brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge I persevere. But if I now do me a favor. favor. Let me in here. Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light. Oh my goodness. What is going on, people? What's good, as the kids say? I There is so much going on in the world right now. I just don't even know where to start. Uh, I had a snow day today. I, I, we thought it might, it's finals week for us at, at the high school. And so a snow day kind of throws everything into flux. We're going to have to do one exam on Monday next week. We are supposed to start the new semester on Monday. Instead, we'll be doing our last final, two finals on Monday. And so it's, everything's just a little chaotic, but the point is I have the day off today. Yay. And I have papers that I've been grading and I'm going to keep grading. But I thought since I have this unexpected time on my hands, now that I've shoveled the walk, now that I've eaten breakfast and, you know, taken care of some stuff, I have a little bit of time. I'm going to use it to release a syncast. It's been a long time since I've done the last one. I think it was probably over the summer when I released the interview with Shay. And there's obviously been a lot of stuff going on. So I want to holler at you. There's a onion series of opinion pieces in the onion about this you know basically this stoner dude who's always like hey man i know it's been a long time since i rapped at you anyway i always feel like that when i do one of these syncasts after a long break so what's happening um and i don't have you know everything split into sections like i normally do current events education economics i'm gonna try to cover each of those areas but i don't have news articles ready to go about them And I'm not going to talk a whole lot about this incident with the Covington Catholic high school students because it's been talked to death. I wrote this big, long piece on my blog about it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to share a couple of quick thoughts about that because it's been on everybody's mind. And if you read the piece that I wrote, thank you. I know it's very long, but I I think it's important that we cover this thing in a way that is nuanced and comprehensive. And so that's why the piece is so long. And so let's go ahead and just talk about it. Since it's one of the current events, let me play the jingle. So the, the, the series of events is interesting because the world saw a tiny little snippet first. And a lot of people jumped to conclusions about what this snippet proved. And then this much longer two-hour video came out later. And a lot of people said, oh, look, this totally smashes what people said about that original clip. And everybody who jumped to conclusions is wrong and evil. 
And there's a lot of self-righteousness on all sides. There's a lot of smug arrogance on all sides. A lot of in this proves X on all sides. And I think it's I'm trying to just stand back and say, hey, here's the way I see it. Here's some of the nuance and and the need for us to resist oversimplification. That's really, for me, sort of the key to my whole way of looking at things. And I wrote about Coney 2012 once upon a time about the need for us to resist oversimplification when it came to that issue. And it's important. This is sort of like a next test case in how we can resist oversimplification. So here's the thing. For those who don't know anything about it. There's this video footage of a guy named Nathan Phillips, who is a Omaha community elder, native community, and he was drumming, and he was with a guy named Frejo. I don't remember Frejo's first name. I want to say maybe Oscar Frejo, um, and uh, Marcus Frejo, and they were drumming in front of this huge group of teenage boys, all of them white except a few, uh, wearing Make America Great Again hats. And when the video, that was the whole snippet. The first one is this one guy named Sandman. I don't know what his first name is. Brian Sandman or whatever. And he's he's like a foot away from the Nathan Phillips. And he's just staring at him with this smile on his face, just staring him down. And the guy's drumming like inches from his face. So the 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 world kind of reacted a lot of people said oh these kids are te- ganging up on her harassing this guy and how could you be so arrogant and white supremacist and etc cetera, etc cetera. and a lot of people made comparisons to the um white people who were uh harassing and attacking the black and a few white protesters at lunch counters in the southern united states in the 1960s so the optics were not good And then some people started to say, wait a minute, there's more to this story, right? And the students started releasing their statements. And then the two-hour video came out. I spent the entire morning on Sunday, I think, uh, watching the video, breaking it down and writing about what I saw and then giving some of my context, my understanding, my perspective on it all. And I'm very thankful people have shared it around on Facebook and stuff, and I appreciate that. Um, and, and, And then the young man at the forefront, the Sandman student, uh, said, you know, he released this statement that was all, it was, first of all, he, he, his family hired a PR firm. So, you know, he had a little help writing this statement, which, you know, whatever, I can see myself being in that situation, wanting some assistance as well. But the problem is that he put himself up as this like victim of this attack almost from this Native American guy who came running up to him and drumming in his face. And he's like, you know, I don't think I have anything to apologize for. I thank this man because he's Phillips was a Vietnam veteran. He said, I thank uh, Mr. Phillips for his service uh, and all this stuff. And now he's on the Today Show. And there, there's there's a lot of, you know, emotion and a lot of point, points that people have made about that. And we can get to that later. In a nutshell, here's what happened, okay? There are four or five members of this group known as Black Hebrew Israelites, and they are very contentious. They're very hostile. Let's just be honest, okay? They're angry. They are, uh, they're acerbic. They're vile, I would say. The things they're saying were atrocious. They were accusing people of being, you know, white, dirty-ass crackers, and, and they were accusing the Native people of being self-loathing and not knowing who they are and using the word Indian when it's a vile slur and you, you know, basically trying to present the world in this very simplified way that is God versus the devil and white people are the devil. That's an oversimplification of their points, but, you know, that's it in a nutshell. So the first half of the video is just them lashing out at everybody. And occasionally different people would come around, native folks, because this was at the end of an indigenous people's march in D.C. So some native folks would come by and try to talk to them and say, okay, let me try to understand where you're coming from. Let me tell you where I'm coming from. 
And eventually, some of these students from Covington Catholic High School who were part of the March for Life, they're from Kentucky, but they went to D.C. as part of this March for Life, this anti-abortion rally, right? And half of them were, you know, there's hundreds of them eventually in the video. Uh, and at least half of them are wearing Make America Great Again hats and shirts and coats or, you know, sweatshirts. And uh, they, um, they, they and all, all of them were in red, white, and blue colors. So it's clear that they're sort of putting a certain political message out, but whatever. Um, so occasionally they would come around and eventually their numbers grew and grew and grew because that's where their school told them, here, come to the, you know, National Mall outside the Lincoln Memorial and wait for the bus. Okay, so they were waiting for the bus. And these, um, the, the, the black Hebrew Israelites were just lashing out at them. And specifically calling out their MAGA hats, right? Make America Great Again hats, and 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 accusing them of supporting a pedophile and a you know a faggot. You know they're using this horrible language to talk about Donald Trump, and not addressing anything about you know what Make America Great Again means or any of that stuff. So there, it's not a very nuanced perspective that these BHI guys are promoting. The the Covington Catholic High School students start responding in various ways, and there are some angry words going back and forth, and it it looks like there might be some static. Because the way I think about it is, and I didn't say this in the piece, but I'll say it now, trying to talk to these BHI guys is just like trying to talk in public, at least, with the Westboro Baptist Church, right? You know those people who go to the military funerals with the signs that say, God hates fags, and thank God for AIDS, and all that? They're just out in public in order to promote this vicious perspective, and that's all they're going to do. And there's no point in trying to talk to them in public, because you know, there, there's, it's, it's theater, right? They're just in public in order to lash out. Yeah. So those of us who have encountered these BHI folks before various places and various contexts, we know that there's really no point in trying to engage because they have this certainty in their mind. You know what Arthur Miller said in the crucible, they believe they held in their steady hand, the candle that would light the world. And once you have that certainty, there's really no there's, it's very hard to have an actual conversation. Certainly not in public, right? This is a sparring match that they're in it for. So it was a losing proposition. And a lot of the Native folks tried that, and they realized this is pointless. I'm going to just leave them alone, right? But I think that a lot of these Covington Catholic high school kids, and I'm going to call them Kavkath because that's the abbreviation they use on their website. The Kavkath kids, you know, they are they kids, are they students, are they young men? There's a lot of argument about that. And of course, then the question is, okay, well, is Tamir Rice a kid? If these 15, most of them are 15, 16 years old, if they're not, if they're kids, and a lot of you know conservative folks are saying, these are children, how dare you? They won't say that about Michael Brown. They won't say that about Tamir Rice. They won't say that about a lot of young black teenagers they become, they're super predators, they're adults, they do, you know, they're capable of all this horrible stuff. But when it's white kids, we call them kids. So please understand that my language is meant to be fluid because they're in that, look, teenagers are in this in-between place. That's why teaching high school is so crazy for me, is that, you know, they're in between being children and being adults. They want to be treated like adults, except when it's time to be responsible like adults, and then they don't want to be adults. So let's just be honest, okay? They're in between children and adulthood, okay? That's the way teenagers are. So I call them students. Um, so the students are responding to the BHI, right? There's this back and forth. And I, I'm convinced that, you know, this is the first time that a lot of them have been able to kind of have this raw, harsh back and forth with people who really disagree with them when they have a lot of their numbers with them, right? There's uh, there's hundreds of these Kavkath students 
all uh, half of them decked out in the Make America Great Again hats and shirts. And there's a certain kind of thinking that goes with that. Okay, so Nathan Phillips and and uh, Mr. Freho come in between the groups and they're drumming. And the, the point that they wanted to do is they wanted to try to defuse it, right? They said this in interviews later. They're trying to defuse the situation. They said that, um, Frejo said, you know, the students went from mocking us and laughing at us to singing with us. I heard it three times. That spirit moved through us, that drum, and it slowly started to move through some of those youths. So they believed that they were calming down the situation. And it's worth pointing out that the BHI guys also said the same thing. Now, they refer to Native American peoples as GAD. I don't understand the etymology of any of this, but whatever. So they, one of them said... Um, here comes Gad, referring to the native drummers. They came through, they're drumming, and he, and then the, one of the BHI guys says, Gad calmed all these spirits right down, as if to say, you know, look, th this was a tense situation, and this drumming and singing helped to calm it all down. Well, not everybody saw it that way, right? A lot of people said that the, you know, Kovkath kids were mocking them and, you know, ridiculing them, and they were, and here's the point, look, who knows, I can't tell you exactly what the spirits were doing in that moment, because I don't know, and I won't claim to know, but I do see in the video a lot of students singing along with the native drummers and singers in a way that feels mocking to me. It just strikes me as just ridiculing, and, you know, they're doing the Atlanta Braves tomahawk chop, which is a racist action, let's just be honest about that, and, and they're mimicking a lot of the stuff they've seen in movies and TV about what native culture is all about, and, and it, it, did, it didn't feel in a way that was honoring what these men were trying to do, or anything about their service, or anything. it was just lol get a load of these guys let's just play along in a mocking way that's the way i read it and you know look that's ascribing attention to these students and maybe that's not fair i don't know but that's what i see when i look at that okay and here's my bigger point okay that's not just any hat okay Support for Donald Trump is not just another American political movement, okay? He is proud of the fact that he's not a politician. His fans, his base love the fact that he's not a politician. So then what is he? He is a cult of personality, okay? You don't get the kind of fanatical loyalty that his base has shown him in the light of his sexual assault, which he has admitted, in the light of his ridicule of, of disabled people, in the light of all of his racist comments and all of the policies he's enacted to ban Muslims from different countries, to um, cage children from Central and South America. It's just... It's stunning that anybody is still supporting this guy. And they don't support it just because they agree with his policies, although that's part of it, of course. But they, they support him because there is a cult of personality here, okay? And, and I say that because we have to understand that when these young men come to Washington, D.C., proudly displaying these Make America Great Again hats, they're not just saying, like, I like this candidate or I like, I like that candidate. They are aligning themselves with a vile ideology, which is exactly what the BHI guys are doing. Now, the BHI guys are cursing and lashing out at specific individuals. Okay, that's not what these Kovkath students were doing. But neither were they just displaying, you know, look, if they had GOP hats on, there would have been no accusations of, you know, all, all this different stuff, right? Now, if the BHI guys hadn't been horrible and racist toward these white kids, there wouldn't have been a conflict. I agree with that, of course, obviously. But but to say that these kids were just minding their own business, that's not accurate. I'm sorry. You cannot go out in public with a Make America Great Again hat and claim, well, I'm just minding my own business. Because by displaying that slogan, you are asserting the legitimacy of an utterly illegitimate and morally corrupt cult of personality leader. And I will not accept 
someone wearing that hat in my classroom without a conversation. I'm not saying you can't wear it, but we're going to have to talk about it. And I want you to examine what it means to wear that hat in exactly the same way as I would demand that someone who comes into my class wearing a Che Guevara shirt wrestle with the human rights abuses we've seen in Cuba, wrestle with things that Che has said that I am not okay with. So, so I believe that it is necessary to get young people specifically, but all of us, to examine our assumptions and to think critically about the ideologies to which we align ourselves. And these young people are not willing to do that, and there's been no discussion of that larger, larger context in any of these conversations. A lot of people who've seen the longer video are like, well, look, this context clearly shows that Nathan Phillips was running up on these white kids and blah, 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 blah. And, and you know what? We can argue about whether he was running up on them. I don't think he was. He was trying to defuse what he observed as a tense situation that had the potential for violence. I think that's a fair way to put it. And he said on Democracy Now!, I was afraid of what these white kids might do or the fact that these BHI guys might lash out at them. So, you know, I, I think that Nathan Phillips was trying to be a peacekeeper in the way that he knows how, by honoring the spirits of his ancestors through drumming and singing. I think that's cool. But the large, so that's what people say when they want the larger context. Oh, look at the whole video. But we have to look at more than just this video, okay? We have to understand that this interaction, right, this raw argument between the BHI guys and the Kavkath students is, is just a lone visible flaring up of a tension that's been simmering, let's be honest, for 400 years, okay? So we can't talk about that larger context without talking about the larger, larger context, right? The video itself is just a medium context. If you want to broaden the scope, we have to talk about the condition of black people in the United States in 2019. And if you're going to talk about that condition, you have to take it back to what happened in the 90s. And if you don't understand that, you have to take it back to the 60s. You can't, you, you can't plead ignorance to history and then say, these kids are being treated unfairly. I mean, again, look, they were in a way because they were being attacked by these BHI guys, no question. And I'm not going to apologize for what the BHI guys said or did. But I also think we have to understand that the BHI guys are representing what was once called the hate that hate produced. Okay? And, you know, the Paris, uh, the rapper from Oakland named Paris once said, don't be telling me to get the nonviolent spirit because when I'm violent, it's the only time you devils hear it. Now, I don't agree with violent ideology. I don't agree with calling white people devils. I don't think Paris is referring to all white people as devils there, but whatever. The point is that, that that's a deep point that a lot of people aren't willing to listen to, okay? White America tends to ignore nonviolent protests. But as soon as windows get smashed and cars get on fire, everybody's paying attention, okay? And if you feel like you're being ignored, you tell me how to continue living with that simmering fury of injustice, because you don't know what it's like to live with that simmering fury of injustice and death and misery and suffering all around you all the time and then to have this MAGA phenomenon come about in the ashes of the Tea Party movement that demonized and, and berated Barack Obama and Donald Trump specifically questioning the right of Barack Obama to even be president in the first place and then to have that man become president after him. That's not just a slap in the face. That is a daily kick in the teeth to the humanity and the dignity of black people and indigenous people and Mexican people and Guatemalan people and, and Muslim people and everybody who doesn't fit the ideology of the MAGA community who want to make America great again. When was it great? Usually they're talking about the 50s. Well, what was life like for black people in the 1950s in the United States? It wasn't great. So those are some of my thoughts. Um, there's a lot more in the piece. 
and the question about you know how we resist oversimplification. I pointed I pointed this out right. Look, I don't know what a proper condemnation from our society toward these students should look like. It would involve the impeachment of Donald Trump for a start and daily violations of the U.S. Constitution. You know that's why he should be impeached because he's violating the emoluments clause every day of his life. But whatever. Um, there was a comment from a Navajo uh, social worker named Amanda Blackhorse. Uh, who talked about, she said, look, I am tired, I am upset, I'm overwhelmed. Keep in mind, these boys are of high school age. All I wish is for these boys to be reprimanded by their school's parents and friends. We did not meet these boys with violence for a reason. And I think that's a beautiful sentiment from someone who has every right to be furious. Um, and it doesn't matter what I think about the punishment for these young people. Neither It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, right? Um, I think that the Kavkaz students were driven, as many teenagers are, as I was with my youth, by being a need to belong and the strange surge of adrenaline that comes with being in a group united by purpose. I believe that the indigenous guys were driven by a desire to calm the tension and provide the strength of spirit their ancestors offered them through drumming and singing. I believe that the BHI guys shared this notion of, um, you know, the, the, they have the truth, right? Anyone who disagrees is evil. Uh, so that, you know, that, that's a problem with them. And, and I, I think that we all have a responsibility to grow and evolve and, and re- remember what Chinua Achebe said about how, um, whatever you are is never enough. You must always take something from the other to make yourself whole, however small and save you from the mortal sin of righteousness and extremism. And BHI guys have a lot of room to grow. I'm sure Nathan Phillips would admit that he has room to grow in terms of his consciousness. But I think white folks most need to raise their consciousness. Because a lot of white people suffer in this cavern of willful ignorance. And they refuse to examine history on anything other than a most cursory level. So they'll talk about how great Dr. King is. But they won't talk about all of Dr. King's legacy. They won't talk about his frustration with white moderates. They won't talk about his hatred for capitalism and the evils of capitalism and the evils of militarism and he was a pretty radical guy he was not well liked when he died but they don't want to talk about those parts of Dr. King's legacy they're just going to quote the I have a dream speech over and over again Mike Pence has the nerve to go on TV and talk about how Donald Trump is doing what Dr. King said to do no you don't get to do that Mr. Pence so raise your consciousness whoever you are join me as I try to raise my consciousness and let's engage in honest discussions about these things in a macrocosmic sense all right that's enough of that we're moving on now what are we going to talk about next we're going to talk about I, one last thing you know what I will say something about this um, I'm finishing up a um, a book about politics it's called cancel the apocalypse thoughts from an anarchist afrocentric milit- feminist nonviolent revolutionary militant is not in that title I made that word up when I was reading it just now um, and it's stuff about where I came from and so forth and so on. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of things that I talk about in this book. It should be out in the spring. We're doing the proofreading part now and I'm working on some publicity events to get the book out there. I'm self-publishing it, but it's going to be available anywhere you can buy books. So here's something I wrote in the, one of the early chapters and it goes like this and it has to do with this whole Codcath situation. Finally, a word about Trump. I wrote most of this book before the 2016 election, and I was involved in political activism for decades before Donald Trump became president of the United States. That election changed everything and nothing. It changed everything because some things in this country got worse. Hate crimes spiked sharply, and one of my good friends had to move to Canada because her children weren't safe from anti-Muslim bullying. Our political divide has grown more hostile in the last two years, and some people have abandoned their connection to the world of facts. 
The 2016 election changed nothing, however, because things weren't all that great before Trump was elected. War and poverty and racism and sexism and hatred toward LGBTQ folks was plenty awful in 2015. Things look bad sometimes, I know. With climate change and nuclear weapons, it feels sometimes like we're in the countdown to Armageddon. Thank you, public enemy. But despair is a luxury I cannot afford. Even if things look bleak, we never know what tomorrow may bring. This is the same reason we can't just get lazy and hope everything will work out. Besides, I think we're going to make it. Despite everything, I believe there are enough good people on all sides of the political spectrum for our civilization to walk back from the edge of catastrophe. I believe we can, as Saul Williams says, cancel the apocalypse. We just have to keep working on it. All right, let's talk about some economic stuff. Get the money, dollar dollar bill, y'all. Gots to get paid. And a lot of federal workers in the United States are not getting paid right now. It's insane. And hopefully you've seen all this stuff, so I don't need to tell you about the GoFundMe pages. People can't pay the rent and the heat and all this craziness. Why? Because Donald Trump wants a wall, and he refuses to cooperate with anybody who tries to promote a spending bill in the government that doesn't include a wall. Now, as a lot of other people have pointed out, he had two years with a Republican Congress where he could have had his wall. But he chose to ask for even more. He got greedy, and then that didn't happen, and now he's stonewalling. And when he stonewalls, he looks strong in front of his base. And the Republicans refuse to pull his card, as the kids say, and demand, and they could. Mitch McConnell is refusing to let any votes go to the floor. I don't understand the details of the process, so I may not have it specifically right here. But, you know, basically, Mitch McConnell is holding up this whole process because he wants to show loyalty to Trump. But if enough Republicans got together and said, no, we need to open the government, they would have to break with Donald Trump, tell Donald Trump to sit down, stop being a sour child, and let these people get paid and do their jobs. Because right now the government is asking these people who include, you know, um, airline traffic safety people, right? The people who tell the planes where to go. They're working without a paycheck. TSA, security gate folks, they're working without a paycheck. All of these people who do really, really important work for the security of our nation, they're not getting paid. And the gov- and Donald Trump is basically saying, thank you for working without a paycheck. He wrote this tweet that was all caps. Thank you. You're patriots. Blah, blah, blah. As, as Trevor Noah pointed out, or maybe it was uh, Stephen Colbert, they're not, they didn't volunteer to do this work without pay. And notice, please, that they only get thanked for their work when they work without pay. Which goes to show you that Donald Trump is a member of the ruling class, as he always has been, and he doesn't care about working people. If he ever cared about working people, he would talk about wages. But he doesn't. He only ever talks about jobs. Well, as Jim Hightower once said, it's not just about jobs. Slaves had jobs. Okay? It's about benefits. It's about wages. And that's why Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, what, what, AOC in the house? She talks about this marginal tax rate of 70% for people earning more than $10 million a year, which means your $10 million and first dollar that you earn in a year would be subject to this very high tax rate, which under Eisenhower, it was at 90%. So it's not ancient history. It's not this crazy idea coming out of nowhere. It's the thing that basically built our middle class for white folks in the 20th century. And we should institute that marginal tax rate again now. Because if you're making more than $10 million a year, you're doing okay. And a lot of people say, well, taxes are theft, and you shouldn't steal money from people if they worked hard for that money. They can choose to give it to worthy causes, but you don't have the right to take it. Well, you know what? If their charity would solve the problems of homelessness and hunger in the United States, we wouldn't have those problems. 
but it hasn't solved those problems, so we can't rely on charity to solve those problems. It has to be taxes. And if you want to talk to me about how taxes are theft, I want to talk to you about how property is theft. And if you don't think property is theft, then you don't have any business talking about what is and is not theft. Okay? Look at the uh, surrounding of the commons. Look at how property came into be. Look what Proudhon said about property. And then we can talk about whether you think taxes are theft. Until then, I don't want to hear a word about it. Meanwhile, in other economics news, I'm trying to think of another story or a trend or event that's happened recently having to do with economics. And all I can say is, you know, people keep talking about how Donald Trump, you know, okay, so the 2020 presidential campaign is starting already. It's two years away, but it's uh, people are starting to announce their candidacy. In the United States, we have the campaign that goes on forever. I know people in the UK are like, why do your campaigns last so long? Because I know y'all have like rules about how long a campaign can run, which is really smart. We ought to do that here. But anyway, the point is that there's like seven or eight people who've already declared their candidacy on the Democratic side. And the question is, can they beat Trump? And one of the points that people make is the economy is doing great. And anytime a president has an economy that's doing great, that really bodes well for them being able to get reelected. Well, it's two years until the election. What if the economy crashes? I think it's likely the economy is going to start doing really badly very soon if the uh, shutdown continues because Wall Street has, you know, Goldman Sachs, some, someone on Goldman, someone in, on Wall Street, I don't remember who it was, but I think it was someone from Goldman Sachs, said, you know, the stock market's going to start tanking and it could wipe out all of the gains that we've seen recently. Now, that's just Wall Street. And it's important to point out that ordinary working people usually don't benefit much when Wall Street does very well, okay? Yes, we all have pensions in 401ks and, and in hedge funds and all these, you know, arcane ways in which our money is kind of indirectly tied into Wall Street. But when Wall Street does great, we see crumbs. And when Wall Street crashes, we feel all the pain. Okay, so I don't get all worked up when Wall Street does great, because I don't really see a lot of that wealth trickling down to me. Okay. Instead, I see Wall Street doing great. They fund lobbyists who then get legislators like Scott Walker to destroy public unions. That makes my life a lot more difficult. It gets in the way of my cash. And that's what I that's the effect I see Wall Street success having on my life. Okay, so you'll forgive me if I'm cynical about Wall Street being real great and having an effect on my life. Meanwhile, the point is, look, is the economy going to crash? I think it's likely that we're going to have a crash soon in the next two years. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I, you know, I'm not going to predict anything because I didn't think Donald Trump would win. So who, who can, so much for predictions, right? But here's the thing. If the economy crashes, I think it will be because we didn't change much after the 2008 Great Recession. We didn't really learn a lot about why that crash happened. A lot of people said, well, it was because of people, you know, having too many houses that they couldn't afford. When the real problem was fraud and criminal activity on Wall Street. And then Obama comes out and goes, well, a lot of what they did wasn't actually illegal. Which, in some places, is technically true. In some places, it's not. Okay, read Charles Ferguson's book, Predator Nation, and you'll see a breakdown of all the things that were illegal that actually happened. He made a good documentary film called Inside Job as well. Um... So if a crash happens, uh, it will be bad news for Donald Trump. And, and I'm not one of these people who says, well, I'm all for anything that causes Donald Trump pain. Because I'm not, right? I'm a human being, and I recognize that a crash would mean that a lot of people would suffer even more than they're already suffering. But if that happens, and you know, it's not like I'm doing anything to try to make a crash happen, right? But if it happens, the question is, will those of us who are opposed to the current economic order, be able to stand up and go, here's why it happened. And will we, will we be able to get through to people? who You know, because, look, 
if if Donald Trump really cared about workers not being victimized by another crash, he would not have surrounded himself with lobbyists from Wall Street. And the same is true about Obama. So Obama and Trump both surrounded themselves with, you know, the Chicago Consensus, which is this, you know, group of econo economists, Timothy Geithner and uh, Ben Bernanke and others, who came from the Chicago School of Economics or whatever. I don't know the technical places. University of Illinois, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, you know, they, they both, both basically surrounded themselves with lobbyists from Wall Street people who've worked on Wall Street all their lives. And um, that means that they're not doing what needs to be done in order to prevent these crashes from happening again. Elizabeth Warren has a very good analysis of why the 2008 crash happened. So I really like the fact she's running for president. There are problems with this DNA thing she did trying to prove she's Native American. I'm not going to get into that right now. I, I like her as a policymaker. I, I agree with almost everything she ever says about economic policy specifically. And... Um, I think Kamala Harris is a really good legislator. And it's funny because on my Twitter feed, I have some conservative people on my timeline. I have some people who are, you know, kind of like moderate Democrats. And then I have a lot of people who are like really radical, like black socialists of America or whatever it is. And they are like, to hell with Obama, to hell with Kamala Harris. And, and they're really angry at moderate Democrats. It's sort of a Judean People's Front type of situation sometimes, or so it seems to me. And maybe that's oversimplifying their perspectives, but that's how I see it. So it's interesting to see everybody trading attacks and I'm going to actively campaign against these people and they list, you know, half of the Democratic pool right now and, you know, the other group lists the other half of the Democratic pool. So the infighting has begun. Bernie bros versus I'm with her Hillary supporters. Ay, ay, ay. Um... And I think it's going to be important as we get closer and closer to the election for us to unify around whoever we end up choosing as the candidate against Trump. And I said the same thing in 2016, by the way. I didn't like Hillary very much. I think she's a career politician who's been forced, for a lot of different reasons, to become a robot. And she has no soul. And she's supported some really dumb things in the past. But I also agree with her when she says women's rights are human rights. And she tried to push for health care reform, limited though it was, during her husband's presidency. And she stood up for a lot of good reforms and, you know, stood up for the rights of women and, and lots of other stuff. So I didn't love Hillary Clinton. But look, when Bernie lost, I was like, okay, look. I'm sorry, people. Hillary's our candidate now. I'm supporting Hillary. I didn't go knock on doors for her, but maybe I should have. I don't know. The point is that it's it's really self-destructive for in those final crucial moments for people to start to continue this fight between groups of people. Now, I say that as someone who, and this has nothing to do with economics, I know, so I've sort of veered off. Imagine that. I veered off into other territory. Um, the point is that I voted for Nader in Florida in 2000, okay? So it's rich for me to say, hey, let's not have split, you know, ideologies and stuff like that. Uh, but I think, and I think there's a value to voting for third-party candidates, even if we know they're not going to win, and we can talk about that in some other place. But I think that the, the kind of existential threat that Donald Trump poses to American democracy and the planet as a whole uh, is such that I, I'm not voting for any third-party candidates right now. So... Those are my thoughts about economics. Let's talk about some education news, shall we? Uh, the Los Angeles teachers had a strike, and it seems like they won. I, I didn't see headlines that said, we won, 
but they have a deal with the Los Angeles School District, and it seems like it's good. Now, one of the things I read, so for those who don't know, the Los Angeles teachers went on strike for like a week, and it shut down. You know, that school district has like half a million kids in it, so that's a big deal for them to go on strike. And the demands they were asking for is more money, always, because teachers are never paid enough, so duh. Uh, smaller classes, which they I heard some report about some classes had 40 students in them. So when I have a class of 30 students, okay, maybe I'm not. it's not fair for me to be complaining, but whatever. It can always be worse. Um and they wanted like a nurse in every school all full time, which that's just insane, right? We shouldn't have to ask for that as educators. Come on. So they got that. I saw something that said each class would go down by one student in the next two years and then like two students after three years or something like that, like very minor adjustments to the school size of these classes. Um, but you know, Hey, whatever it showed some power and collective bargaining and action and some sort of pay increase, which is probably very minor, but that's the thing. In my experience, the teachers are always willing to concede first. They always make it clear that it's not really about the money. Look, if we wanted to get a lot of money, we wouldn't be teachers period. End of discussion. That doesn't mean we shouldn't get paid at all. And it doesn't mean that we don't deserve a living wage, but if we have to try to choose in these negotiations between more money for us or nurses for our kids, we're going to choose the nurses. And the point is we shouldn't have to make that decision and shame on our entire society, especially the ruling class, Donald Trump and Jeff Bezos for putting us in a situation where we have to make that decision as educators. Shame on all of you. So, um, as for other education news, it's interesting because Betsy DeVos is the Secretary of Education in the United States, and she's been pretty quiet. I actually haven't seen anything compared to where we were with Arne Duncan under Obama and, oh, I can't remember Bush's Secretary of Education, but those Secretaries of Education had, you know, George W. Bush had the No Child Left Behind, which was a terrible rehaul of education in many ways and Arne Duncan under Obama continued that with the race to the top initiative so the fact that Betsy DeVos hasn't introduced any new reforms so far as I know that's a good thing that shows that our vitriol against her ideas when she first got into office the, the I think that may have been effective in telling her to shut her mouth and stay in her lane which is to I don't even know what her lane is, really. I mean, I know she's a, what was she, a venture capitalist or something, and she champions school reform in maybe Michigan or whatever, but, you know, she's not been trying to foist that nonsense on the rest of the nation, so that's good. And no news is good news in terms of national education reform, in a way. Look, don't get me wrong. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me, okay? There are things about the American school system that need to be drastically overhauled. Our schools are messed up, okay? But... A lot of times when people step in with this, uh, I got reforms ready to go, here you go, do this, they tend to make things worse. So, as the Hippocratic Oath says, first, do no harm. And I'll be honest, I don't trust Betsy DeVos to do no harm, okay? So I'd rather she just do nothing than try to make things better. Because I don't think she has the well-being of students, and certainly not the well-being of poor communities, communities of color, uh, schools in the barrios and the ghettos on the reservation. She doesn't have any interest in making those schools better, or schools in trailer parks, you know, so let's be real. Um, so, I don't have anything else to say about education. Let's move on to killer robots. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. I'm 
Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Uh, the Duchess and I recently rewatched Ex Machina and Her, two movies that are about AI and how we relate to robots, and they're both fascinating. For those who don't know, Ex Machina is about this young man who works in a Facebook-style company who gets who wins this contest in his company. Basically, it's Jeff Bezos-like character, or a, a, he's sort of a um, oh, who's the guy who made Facebook? You know, Zuckerberg, uh, who invites him to this like compound where he lives and basically asks him to sort of do this Turing test where he tries to figure out if this robot is a person, if, if she passes the Turing test, basically. Could she fool people into thinking that she's a real human, right? And it's just a very interesting psychological examination of how we relate to robots, and there's a lot of stuff that happens in the movie, and I obviously won't give spoilers, but it's just, I, I, I underestimated it the first time I saw it. I felt like it was very impressionistic, but that was partly because... You know, sort of like Barton Fink and Primer and The Usual Suspects and Fight Club, there's certain things that you don't really make sense until you see it the second time. And once you see it that second time, a lot of stuff comes to light that I didn't really appreciate the first time. You can't, probably. So uh, I love, I really came to love that movie. I liked it the first time I saw it, but now I love it because there's a lot of really important questions that it asks there about, based, and, and largely about how we make robots. And that's kind of what her is about as well. So for those who haven't seen her, it's about a guy who falls in love with Siri, basically, right? The voice on your cell phone, it's an operating system in, in the movie. And it, the voice is Scarlett Johansson, and it's very seductive and throaty and, hey, how you doing? All that stuff. And there's sexuality in both of these movies, so it's not they're not for kids. But, you know, in her, there's no body, right? There, there's no body present. And so it asks some really interesting questions about what love looks like and how we experience love in the absence of the physical body. But it's also about, you know, synthetic love, basically, right? This question of the Chinese room. And for those who don't know the Chinese room, here it is in a nutshell, okay? Um, there's a guy in a room, and he in it, there's two, two doors leading out of the room, flaps in each of them, and someone will put something in English, or sorry, a question written in Chinese in the first flap. The dude has a book that he looks up each symbol as it's written on the page and what to write if that symbol shows up, right? And the book is billions of pages long. It's a theoretical scenario, of course. And But he writes out responses. So if you were to write in Chinese, how are you today? The person will write in Chinese, um, I'm doing well, thank you, how about you? And they'll put it through the other flap, right? So it's the input and the output flaps in the doors. And the question is, is that person speaking Chinese? Right, it's 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 a it's a virtual form of Chinese that he's speaking. The guy didn't know Chinese; he couldn't exist without the book. But but is that language proficiency? Right, and most people would say no. But then the question is, well, how do you know? Right, what is it? What does that mean to be able to speak a language? Right, um, and and when it gets to things like love, then it gets really tricky, right? Because then the question is, as Gone Girl tries to very clumsily and I think very uh, crudely address, you know, how do you know if someone loves you or not? How do you know how someone really feels? How do you know what's going through someone else's head? Well, of course we don't. Um, and and all love is is a, based on a series of sort of assumptions and, and, and you know, um, trust is obviously a big part of it, right? And both Ex Machina and her really ask good questions about how we trust robots and what we trust them to do and not do. And I think that the biggest takeaway when it comes to quote-unquote killer robots is we really shouldn't trust autonomous AI with the ability to kill people. We just shouldn't. I don't think that's a good idea. Okay, that's just my perspective. 
And this is not just a far-off science fiction concept, right? There is a campaign to stop killer robots, and one of the champions of that campaign is um, Jody Williams, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for her work against landmines. And she sees killer robots as the next big threat to humanity. And the idea that we're going to take the drones who currently you know, provide surveillance and drop bombs occasionally. We're going to let them have, you know, the bombs are piloted by people in other places. Well, there's a lot of people who say we should just let those robots pilot themselves and choose for themselves when to drop the bombs or fire guns. And that's a really bad idea, Jody Williams says. And I agree. I think that's a terrible idea. So when I talk about killer robots, okay, yes, it's funny, you know, Terminator and you know whatever, but there is a real problem facing us as human beings that we haven't really started to address because every time you talk about killer robots everyone's like skynet and it's always tongue-in-cheek and it's like ha 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 get it this movie but it's not in the distance it's not science fiction it's becoming reality and we really ought to wrestle with it and here's the thing look those movies can help us to talk about this stuff right the matrix shows us a very interesting very you know long-term view of what it means to try to coexist with our technology. And what happens if technology is, as Cornell West and Ken Wilber say in their commentary tracks, if technology is just a reflection of our core spirit, do we like what it reflects? Right? What are these black mirrors showing us? Uh, that's what we don't, that's what's uncomfortable for us. And, but, but, but we have to take those questions seriously if we're going to learn from our experimentation and the potential that our imagination can dredge up. And that's why those things are important. All right, moving on to hip hop. Uh, hip hop. Hip hop. Yeah, speaking of this book, I'll read you another tiny little excerpt uh, in one of the first chapters called How Do I Got to Be Like This, which is a reference to a Utah Phillips song. Um, I, it starts like this. My first taste of political consciousness came from rap music. And I know some of you know this already, but it, it, it's, it's all right. I didn't know which power I was supposed to fight when public enemy chanted fight the power in 1989, but it changed me forever. Even as I write these words, I'm wearing a public enemy shirt. Uh, right now in 2019 on uh, January 23rd, I'm just wearing my brown overshirt and a white undershirt from uh, school yesterday. I haven't, I'm sorry, I haven't taken a shower today. Sometimes I don't shower if I have a snow day because you know what? I'm not going out. Whatever. I'll start more information than you needed. I understand. By devouring their lyrics and liner notes, I took Public Enemy's message to the next level and gained a better understanding of the people and events mentioned in the music. Our parents raised my brother and me with liberal ideals of caring, compassion, and kindness. They taught me. They taught for a living, spreading enlightenment and helping students who needed it. From them, I learned about belief in action, practicing what you preach, and not preaching much. But when in my teenage years, I found the world of political hip-hop, artists like Paris, KRS-One, Queen Latifah, Public Enemy, and Stetsasonic, I started to gain a profound new understanding of both the problems facing our civilization and the tradition of struggle working to solve them. And I talk about um, Consolidated, which was another music group. Uh, yeah, I'll read this paragraph too, because it's important. Another music group that deserves credit for my political maturation was a little-known industrial band from California called Consolidated. Combining noisy beats with pedantic diatribes against sexism. Oh, I should point out the, uh, uh, there's no word on Salvador. That clip earlier in this show uh, for current events, that's Consolidated. Some of their later work, it's not very noisy or industrial. That's from an album called Business of Punishment when they started making more melodic music. Uh, their first album, Myth of Rock, is entirely just industrial beats. <laughs> product. Product. 
So anyway, uh, diatribes against sexism, consumer culture, racism, homophobia, and a dozen other ills, their music hit me hard in a personal way. White rappers like Third Base and the Beastie Boys had an attitude toward po politics that was distant and tepid. Consolidated, on the other hand, went straight for the jugular in a fiery political assault. While I respected and admired African-American rappers, I knew that black life was something I did not understand firsthand, and I should never pretend to be something I wasn't. Consolidated showed me how white artists could challenge white supremacy, how men could challenge patriarchy, how straight folks could wage war on homophobia. If public enemy was Frederick Douglass, Consolidated became my William Lloyd Garrison. So that's all to say that, you know, when, when I talk about teaching a class on hip hop, someone on Twitter one time posted a gif of a guy laughing hilariously, you know, high school hip hop class. Ah! And I don't blame him for having that response. You know, most people t t tell me that they teach a class on hip hop in high school. I'm probably going to roll my eyes. Okay. Depending on who the person is. I try not to make assumptions, but look, most teachers I had shouldn't go near teaching a class on hip-hop because you can't teach what you don't know. And most folks don't know a lot about hip-hop. But I teach the class because hip-hop has been a part of my life for all of my life. And it's presumptuous for me to teach a class on hip-hop. If somebody else were at our school willing to do it, I would probably say, you know, and, and there was a teacher I traded it off to for a while, and I said, you know, more power to you. But I do feel like I have a lot to teach, and I think I do it, I try to do it in a way that is conscious of my white privilege and enlightened and still funky and celebratory of all the different elements in hip-hop. And the number one thing, we just got done with the semester, so I just got done teaching the hip-hop class for 18 weeks in a block schedule format for the first time I was doing the block schedule, which is, which is tough because you have less time overall, so there were things I didn't get to that I really wanted to. But... The number one thing I think the students came away with, which is really my biggest emphasis, is you have to understand where hip-hop came from, which was, there's a documentary called Rubble Kings on Netflix. It's really good. Uh, John Leguizamo does the narration, and it's all about where hip-hop came from, which was, it came out of a peace treaty that a bunch of gangs put together after one of their leaders got killed. And hip-hop became a way to channel their anger at the injustice all around them into something creative rather than taking it out in gang warfare on each other, okay? That's the true origin of hip-hop in New York, okay? And hip-hop has changed and evolved everywhere it's gone, Chicago, West Coast, Dirty South, and other countries. And we, we shouldn't say that hip-hop is just one thing because, of course, hip-hop is always lots of things. Let's resist oversimplification, right? But I, I, I think that the biggest problem with oversimplification in hip-hop is that the, the, the images most of us see about hip-hop are the unholy trinity, pimps, hoes, and, and gangsters, right? And it's all about drugs and money and having sex and naked women. And, and that's just one part of hip-hop, right? It's an important part of hip-hop, but it's not the only part of hip-hop. So when people learn about, you know, rappers like Brother Ali and, and Most Def and, and Yasin Bey and Talib Kweli and, and Queen Latifah and, and, and Ruby Ibarra, I think they get a bigger understanding of what the world of hip-hop is and what it can be. And it doesn't have to be confining at all. And it doesn't have to be um, degradative. So, do I have someone special hip-hop-wise to tell you about today? No, I do not. Um, I will tell you that Ruby Ibarra has a great video called Us, which is about being a proud Filipino woman. I will tell you that um, Logic has an album called Young Sinatra 4, which is very good. It starts with a track called Thank You, which is a big thank you to all his fans. 
And I will tell you that, uh, what else is going on in the world of hip hop? You know, I got a couple of students who are doing good hip hop. I don't know if they're comfortable with me sharing information about them. I'm not supposed to do that. Um, but if you look, you will find them. And um, what else can I say about hip hop? Uh, hip hop's awesome. I love hip hop. I think I'm out of things to say about hip hop, so I'm going to move on. Let's talk about a quote of the week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the end is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. Wait up a minute. Uh, I don't have a quote ready to go here. Um, I'm trying to look through this book that I wrote because I have a lot of quotes in it. Uh, but I don't, I can't find anything off the top of my head and I didn't save something ready to go. Um, so, uh, here we go. Yeah, no, no, this is good. Um, no, that's about East Timor. That's depressing. I don't want to share that. I want to share something uplifting. Come on, me from the past. Give me something uplifting. Uh, yeah, Emma Goldman, there we go. This is in the chapter about anarchism. All right, Emma Goldman coming through. Thank you. She wrote in her 1917 book, Anarchism and Other Essays, quote, Anarchism then really stands for the liberation of the human mind from the dominion of religion, the liberation of the human body from the dominion of property, liberation from the shackles and restraint of government. Anarchism stands for a social order based on the free grouping of individuals for the sole purpose of producing real social wealth, an order that will guarantee to each human being free access to the earth and full enjoyment of the necessities of life according to individual desires, tastes, and inclinations. That's why I'm an anarchist, and that's what I want to make for in the world. I'm running out of words because my brain is frazzled. I was grading for two days straight before today, and I'm still recovering from that grading blitz. So I'm done. We're finished here, people. We're f- It's over. There's a new syncast, finally, after 10 million years. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Um, let me go to the bottom of this document because I have my text that I got to read out. Yeah, show notes. Eh, I don't really have links to things in the podcast. There, um, you can read, but you can read the whole piece about the MAGA situation with Nathan Phillips and that whole thing and the Black Hebrew Israelites on my blog, which is Didactic Syn- Synapse F B E S P dot O R G slash Synapse. My website is the Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski F B E S P dot O R G with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia and the Mind Wipe books are there and Cancel the Apocalypse will soon be on that website as well. Uh, shout outs this week to everybody who is listening you thank you for listening and shout outs to the duchess who is running for office in madison big ups to diane uh vote diane in district 12 i should have talked about this earlier in the show you can only vote for her if you live in district 12 of madison but you can donate to her no matter where you are so come up off that dough cash rules everything around this campaign what uh, but she's just been working tirelessly to uh, run a good campaign, and I made a little video for her, and I'm hoping to release that soon. And uh, it's just been amazing to see all these people come out to show their love for Diane, and she totally deserves it. And it's 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 sort of a case of she's getting recognition that she's deserved for a long time, and I think there's a certain level of respectability that comes with running for office, meaning that people who never really bothered to listen to her before are listening to her now, and it's good that they're listening to her now. Better late than never. So big ups to you, uh, Diane, for getting that respect because you deserve it, and I hope you win, and I think you have a good chance. So I'm not going to jinx it, but yeah. 
I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb stuff I forgot to cut out. I don't know what to tell you. I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. You can email me, esp at fbesp.org, or you can tweet me at Duke Scaff. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. You know, I'm eating a Cliff Bar for the first time. The Duchess got some of these when she had people campaigning for her, and she wanted to give them a little nourishment kick. And they're good. It's, it's tasty. I can see why these things are popular. Um, it's got 260 calories and 7 grams of fat, which kind of feels like a lot for a little energy bar. But, um, you know, you get sick. I, I bring an apple every day to school, and I don't know. I get sick of fruit all the time. So sometimes I'll get, like, Ritz crackers with peanut butter in them or something. I'm not supposed to have those because some people have peanut allergies, and it can be a serious problem. But I always keep them in my desk, and I don't let you – know, usually it's a problem if the person eats peanut butter. So I don't ever serve – I don't give my kids food, period, but whatever. The point is I might get some of these to bring to school because it's a good source of energy. There's a lot of protein probably. How much protein is in this sucker? Protein, protein, protein. 11 grams of protein. I don't know if that's a lot or not. I'm just babbling. I'm going to stop now. Thanks for listening.